This is Mythos, and I am the creator, Nicole Schmidt. This podcast is a storytelling journey through world folklore. Here, you will experience fresh interpretations of traditional narratives, mainly with a darker edge. The aim of Mythos is to ignite a passion for the lore of generations past by telling the stories with a sense of magic, as if they were entirely real. With brief context and analysis in the introductions, the main focus is the retelling of the stories themselves. Welcome to Folklorica Slavica, the series in which we will explore the folkloric landscape of the Slavic world. Here we will encounter the witches, demons and spirits that haunt the forests, lakes, mountains, urban spaces and even bathhouses of Russia, Poland, Ukraine, the Czech Republic, Slovakia and more. Lady Death mowing down a victim with her scythe, a demon of the harvest fields in the shape of a mourning widow. Is it any wonder that folklore symbolically conflates death and the harvest in such potent images, when the harvest was the very heart and pulse of the agricultural communities of the folk? All the drama and terror of human longing would be in that miracle of seed, golden with promise. There would be the tiny terraced beauty of the wheat grains yet also the gut-level terror of the rain-soaked rot of a poor harvest. There would be the elegant rhythm of scythes being swung, mimicking the movement of the sun across the celestial sphere, but there would also be the blood-stripping nausea of sunstroke. There would be the satisfaction of soft linen workers' clothes and the cool of the morning, but there would also be the stinging chafe of sweat and grit. There would be the diurnal pinnacle of freshly baked bread, but there would also be pot-bellied starvation in the bad years. The harvest field, and for that matter the grazing field, has a magical potency drawn from the mystery of the earth, for as Natalie Kononenko so eloquently put it, because the ancestors rest in the earth and become one with it, the Slavs also feel a powerful connection to the soil in which their ancestors rest. Soil, food, and death. Indeed, these all-encompassing aspects of the human experience are also mythologically summarized in the Slavic deity Veles, who besides being the god of earth, water, and forest, is also associated with the harvest, cattle, and the underworld. His domain is down where the spirit meets the bone, where groundwater is lapped up by tree roots and seeds and bacteria. His domain is bovine meat and grain, bread and manure, death and life. So, we will encounter these beings whose very nature combines life-giving harvest and death-giving exhaustion from labor. We will also encounter harvest demons in the golden wheat fields and the life-stripping heat of the noonday sun in Poland, Russia, and Slovenia. We will also meet the wolf shepherd, an unusual patron to Croatian cattle farmers and their gentle field-dwelling bovines. Welcome to episode 3 of Folklorica Slavica, Harvest Demons and Wolf Shepherds.
Story 1. Paludnica, the Noon Wraith, Poland As the farmer swung their scythes in unison, following the movement of the sun, that blazing fever of chafing yellow, they began to stoop. Their muscles and their souls blistered and stinging. The linen-clad laborers' very beings were bent double, and even their thoughts had a stinging, heat-muffled quality, as if their spirits had been cut and so smarted with grit and sweat and the detritus of their precious wheat. Indeed, their labor felt sun-cursed, the brooding earth exhaling fire imps, the heat beyond the history and understanding of even the eldest of them. Something glared at them, something vampiric, thirsting for all the life moisture the earth could yield. Whisperings and mutterings revealed snippets of a burdensome fear, that she had been awakened early from her hibernation between, beneath the fields, that she breathed all the hot anger of many sons because the first-cut wheat sheaf had been stolen. And one man swung his scythe and felt nothing but the soul-crushing progress of time, as if every passing moment had infinite heights and depths that could not be traversed. With every murderous sweep of the scythe, he remembered his beloved wife, who death herself had also mowed down. And so that sacred ceremony of movement, with the scythe poised above like the risen sun, and the elegant movement downwards like the sunset, well, this became a monotonous mockery, a reminder that time moved onwards, mechanically, without even a backward glance at the wife he had so dearly loved. And when the noonday sun straddled the sky with queenly indifference and sent shards of white fire slicing into the skin, the harvesters laid down their tools and headed for that liquid shade in welcoming doorways. But one man did not follow, for in the heat-distorted air there was mostly empty space. And one last section of wheat a blaze in the wavering oven-like atmosphere. And it was this one last section that attracted him. And if he knew his fellow villagers at all, he knew they would work from left to right, leaving that very last sheaf of wheat, the very last to be cut, for an offering to Makazima, Mother Earth. He could see that last standing stalk straight-backed with a knowing pride, could feel all its potent energy full of bread blessing in life. If he could be the one to cut it, well, he had been foolish enough to believe that the presence of the first sheaf, an offering to Mother Earth, would perhaps heal his wasting wife. So he had stolen it. So now, perhaps if he could make the offering of the last fruits of the field, to make up for what he had done, to give back what he had stolen, he stopped. The wheat had been disturbed. First, it was the eye-cutting flash of white linen between the stalks, and then a violent swish and cut, with the wheat heads in the middle of the patch agitated and then yanked down out of sight. Then, a sort of gliding step sound in the midst of the patch, something both humanoid and airy. The harvester stood as still as death only a short distance from the edge of the wheat patch, 
unable to move and terrified to see that his quickening breath had caused the movement to stop and then to start again in his direction, then to pause directly in front of him at the very edge of the wheat, hidden by it, only partially. For parting the wheat with the razor-thin movement, a feminine slender arm shot out, a small scythe in its grip. The man gazed in horror at the seared strips of flesh and sinew, at the heat-curled flakes of rotten skin, the deep grooves and deep yellowed pus, uncannily like the straw arm of a scarecrow. And more horror, as the man saw the arm was bent unnaturally backwards and that the shapely back and swaying hips of a young woman, flower-crowned golden hair tumbling down the back, this, her figure was emerging from the wheat patch, as if the creature were enticing him to her, yet being mock coy by having her back turned to him, taking those steps backwards with jerking unnatural movements, as if at a sinister wedding dance. Then the demon turned and swayed towards him with gliding steps, and from her open mouth, a black cave full of sun-reflecting teeth. While there first came a whirlwind, a weird moaning as of baffled demons, and a blast of stinging sand that burned so acutely that the man thought his skin had been stripped clean off. The man fell to his knees and buried his head into the ground, covering his head with his arms. His temples throbbed at the pitch and tenor of the call. It grated at his mind, seared it with a boiling sting. Then the demoniac whistling and moaning gave way to something else. Discernible words, a tune. And while the harvester was too terrified at first to register the meaning, he recognized the lament, a funeral lament. In the fetal position, bent down like a terrified child, the man peeked long enough to see feet directly in front of him, feet with seared strips of flesh and heat-curled flakes of rotten skin, and the words then blazed down upon him as a blazing fever of chafing yellow, as souls blistered and stinging. Where are you going? she sang. Are you going to a house on earth? Are you going to the noontime service? No, you are wearing clothes that are not local, and your footwear is not what you wore before. The harvester wept as the very depths of his mind ached with the parching heat of her words. The sunburn of his soul skin by the blood-sapping blaze of her mockery. Her mockery, this funeral lament, given all of his loss. Well, it was a scythe, salt on blisters, stalks of spearing wheat stubs on tender feet. For a moment, she fell silent. And so with trembling soul, the harvester risked another glance, and the cruel, eye-cutting white of her linen, now ablaze aglow, sent shards of fire glass into his eyes. And he cried out, feeling his mind snap as her blistered, charred voice continued the funeral lament, all mockery and cruelty. Ah, I know. Myself, I myself comprehend, she sang, that you are preparing for that road, for that place of the ancestors. 
Once again, he looked up, even though half-blinded. And through blurred vision, he saw a seared female form. He looked at strips of flesh and sinew, at the heat-curled flakes of rotten skin, the deep grooves and deep yellowed pus, uncannily like the straw arm of a scarecrow. All horrifically familiar, except now, prowling and padding around her, were black dogs sniffing at her heat-desiccated skin. Then, the harvester felt a swing of the scythe, not physically, but within his inner self. And then, the sensation of a gossamer thread being cleanly cut and dissipating into utter blackness. Story 2. The Harvest Widow, Russia Awakening in a wheat field beneath the hostile glare of the noonday sun, the harvester gripped his amulet, a bundle of woven golden wheat. He felt the smooth, supple energy of its protective magic, all the newness, all the seed potential, all the growth potency of that first sheaf of wheat. He had lovingly woven that first sheaf all field laborers called Veles's beard, felt the loving heat of his own fingertips endow it with soil-rich bread smell magic, felt a solemn and peaceful irradiation all about him. Surely the great hum of harvest magic would dispel this growing sense of rot. How strange that in the rasping dryness of sun-sapped earth, amongst the maiden gold of supple wheat, there would be such a feeling, a rank wafting of rain-soaked wheat decay. The, the feeling of past years when wheat was drenched in cold sky spittle and left to fester. A feeling, yet so very strong that the harvester felt his nostrils and his mind's eye clogged with it. And in his rot-drenched mind's eye, he saw and remembered. Again, the previous year when the tiny voluptuousness of nearly ripe wheat heads had writhed with orange-colored grubs, a sloppy munching in their parasitic movements. He remembered those desperate last days when they ground tree bark into the anemic layer of flour that would barely create a slice of bread, let alone a loaf. The hunger, the sense of all things falling apart, his family skin flaking as if their very center could not hold, as if a demon of drought and dryness were licking away at them. He remembered the listless apathy of mind and soul, remembered feeling nothing towards the end as all of them, even he himself, felt like wavering mirages, a false image of once thriving humanity. He remembered being too weak to nurse his children, disease-stricken, and sucking desperately on their own piteous wails. He had resented his own survival, and often still did. His thoughts were scraped and startled by tiny movements at the base of the wheat, just in front of him. With hellish intensity, the noonday sun illuminated the movement, and it was as if a herd of small animals were darting back and forth. 
The harvester got onto his hands and knees and crawled to that edge of unharvested wheat. Parting the stalks, he saw them. And a shuddering, prickling breathed over his skin. Naked little men, they were, with stocky little muscles rippling with perverse energy. Dwarfs with ballerina fluidity, pirouetting and sprinting, with musculature moving beneath earth-colored skin. And the harvester's very soul itched and smarted for the pull of oi. These spirits of field and earth were all made of pollen saturation and irritation and itchiness. Their skin was marked by a fingernail-digging redness and rashes, and from their grass hair came dusty waves of pollen. The harvester's eyes became red, and he nearly had the desire to tear his eyes out with the burning itch that now saturated them. There is something choleric and mean-spirited in it. All the while, there was a heated silence. A sense of mirage permeated the place, as if a veil between realms had been torn. The harvester scurried to his feet and turned to flee, but stopped before he even started. A hunched shape walked no eerily glided across the barren field, her figure distorted by a wall of wavering heat that now asphyxiated the world. As he gazed at the figure, shuddering at what seemed to be tattered black mourning clothes like that of a widow, and patches of haggard, scarred, liver-spotted skin. As he felt increasingly smothered by an infernal heat, he heard a sort of strange chanting, and again, that heated silence, that sense of mirage, that feeling of torn veils and uncanny realms. And amidst his memories of disease-strucken whales and anemic souls and starvation and death, it came to him. The song, the chant, it was the first Panakita, the funeral psalm, but mocking, snide, and shrill. The harvester could not move, for from the hunched figure, elderly and emaciated, came a silent shrieking, a scraping of nails on the mind, and as the funeral psalm continued its merciless looming path on the ceaseless wind, his memories returned. Again, the ground tree bark into the anemic layer of flour that would barely create a slice of bread, let alone a loaf. The sense of all things falling apart, his family's skin flaking, as if their very center could not hold, as if a demon of drought and dryness were licking away at them. He remembered the listless apathy of mind and soul, remembered feeling nothing towards the end, as all of them, even he himself, felt like wavering mirages, a false image of once thriving humanity. And these mind images of death and starvation felt so immediate, so very vivid, that the hunched figure seemed to glide through them as she moved towards him with uncanny speed. And she burned them up inside of him. She burned up these images. And he could think nothing, for she was terrible to look upon. The harvest widow, this demon of mourning and heart-stopping oppressive heat, had skin thinned by unfathomable eons, and the harvester's muscles clenched in terror and discomfort, 
to see nettles lodged into her skin, which seemed to writhe like a creature consumed by flames. Her tattered mourning clothes barely covered anything, and in the numerous gaping wounds, he saw orange-colored grubs, a sloppy munching in their parasitic movements. Her hair was like a diseased, rotting wheat field, limp and moist with cold rain. She then stopped in front of him, her gaze downcast, and when she looked up, the harvester shuddered, for layer upon layer of scar tissue made her features bulbous and cracked. Her face, dear God, was the accumulation, the meeting place of centuries of mourning, of those widows who had cut themselves in their grief. Upon her face was all the scarification that every widow who'd ever mourned had inflicted upon themselves. The harvester stayed perfectly still, trembling. Then silence, for the psalter had stopped, and all was a boiling nothingness. With tumbling, halting words, he whispered the midday exorcism prayer, but felt it melt and dissipate into the wavering noonday air. Then he screamed, feeling both his legs give way beneath him with a nauseating crack. And the last thing he saw before he hit the ground was Koliva dribbling from her ancient, thin-lipped mouth. Down her creviced chin came an impossible river of that funeral food. Koliva boiled wheat mixed with honey. And through that sticky stream came a crone voice saying, You did not bow, foolish man. You did not bow. Story 3, Paludnica, The Harvest Vampire, Slovenia Amidst the harvest pungency of sharp sweat, the villagers stood around a pole, keeping a clear path for the little girl who cradled a vaguely human effigy, a bundle of grain fashioned into a woman. With the pure white of harvester's linen, crude eyes and mouth, like a drawing by a troubled child, and a string tied at the waist, an oafish, even mocking attempt at a female figure. Yet, as the effigy was mounted onto the pole, overlooking the sun-blazed wheat fields, the spiritual potency of the crude wheat dwarf washed over them, became a presence that protected, that radiated apotropaic magic, and warded off a seething, hissing presence sleeking away like an animal. This tribute to Mother Earth contained a portion of that swallowing, crushing power of that great matriarch's mouth, was the very grain spell of her very heart, and it was enough. And the villagers watched as the tall wheat, some, somewhat in the distance, shivered and shuddered in one lonely portion, right in the middle of the wheat field. Then a trail of moving wheat as that seething, hissing presence made its way to a fallow field by a copse of trees, 
made its way to an uncanny spot where, in the middle of a fertile and abundant summer-kissed land, the grass suddenly became gray and withered, where plant life was all brittle wreckage and horrible brittleness. Great bare trees clawed up at the sky, and the cursed spot sprawled open to the sky as if eaten by acid. It was whispered amongst the village elders that to enter that clearing was to enter her dimension, a hostile space that made grass blades and tender leaves and human hearts feeble and frail and blanched and sallow. It was as if a giant lamprey lay beneath the earth and had latched onto it with its awful circular rows of teeth an infinite circle of infinite demonic hunger. Then all became quiet, and the laborers wisely went to swim in dream oceans, in shaded places, sought the tender coolness of shaded afternoon naps. For effigy or no effigy, the sun's meridian was a potent celestial positioning. The earth was spread wide, and vulnerable beneath the noonday rays, and the golden heat made the veil between worlds oh so thin, and Polunitsa reigned in that boundary. When the harvest commenced the next day, and the villagers marched out in their white linen, with sides mounted on labor-sculpted shoulders, the effigy-bearing girls stood in awe of their adult strength and height, their rough and vigorous pastoral beauty. The girl waited until they were all under the hypnosis of the rhythmic slashing of sides before she wandered into another part of the field, that part that bordered the cursed spot. For the curious child had cradled the effigy, had felt its power, and was convinced of its protective powers, and she felt that childlike drive to see the unknown and forbidden to peer between the tall wheat and into that dimension of depletion and unholy hunger. And the lamprey-like presence in that withered and bloodless spot sensed her desire and waited. The noonday sun would be sending those golden wraiths, those sharp-teethed vampires, into the fields, and Polonitsa would gather the rays into her being, feeding on the sapping heat of the sunshine, and she would gather into herself that sweltering, chasmic hunger. Polonitsa lingered behind the grayish withered grass, which surrounded a few great bare trees that clawed up at the sky, like skeleton claws reaching for sun and air with almost desperate need. She watched the small human child crawl on hands and knees through the wheat with careful, quiet movements. She could smell her coursing, seedling blood and felt the hunger of her own brittle, spectral being. And as the child stood and came just a little closer, Polonitsa felt the supple blood flow of the plump child contrast bitterly with the dry, scaling fragments of her soul, felt the scraping longing of that which was wet and rich and abundant. This was her chance, and so she conjured all the verdant alchemy of sap and moisture, channeled this into her parched blood vessels and brittle bones and desiccated skin, created her alluring illusion, and stepped out into full view of the child, 
and her shrunken bones expanded into elegant height, and her shriveled scalp sprouted wheat-golden hair, and her skin filled out with sun-glow suppleness. And the little girl stared at her with innocent awe, not noticing the scythe she held behind her back, nor the cries of her worried parents. And when Polunitsa's being surged with hunger, the child cried out, for the noon wraith's enchantment surged with uncontrollable desire. Her gentle white linen dress became a scorching, flaring kind of blindness, and her mouth opened wide like a lamprey's, an unholy wizard circle, surrounded by sharp teeth. And the worried parents heard the cry and ran to her. The dear little child had become so one with that barren, comatose domain of gray-withered grass and brittle wreckage that at first her parents did not see her little form laying gently in the fetal position. And when they did see her shivering form, almost bloodless and emaciated, they could see she stood at the very threshold of death. And the little girl muttered as if replying to death's dry and rasping invitation to step over that threshold. A profound and cosmic anemia saturated the girl, as if she were the feeding ground of all the lonely spectral forces of dark and alien realms. And as the weeping parents gathered up her feeble, frail, blanched form, she felt fey and insubstantial, like a ghostly breath, like that first harvested wheat sheaf mowed down by a sun-gleaming scythe. Story 4. The Wolf Shepherd, Croatia A lupine breath seemed to course over the Dalmatian Zagora, the inland landscape of forest-laden karst mountains, mountains like the haunches of a rock wolf at the cusp of springing with predatorial energy, of shadowed infinity in the rocky nooks and crannies like gaping stone maws, the land of waterfalls, foaming cataracts in the throaty canyons of Kirka, the land of wet-mouthing lakes of impossible depth in Amotsky. And that lupine breath swirled and capered until it reached lowing cattle in a rocky highland field. And somehow, the bovine eyes widened with uncanny knowing. They loped away towards their wintering barn, hearing the cry of their herder. It was November 11th, and pasturing season was over. And that lupine wind heralded and whistled, became gorged with presence, for he, many miles away, was crossing the sea, the threshold waters of the great beyond. And a farmer, who waited in a tree, amongst its bough, amongst its branches, in a tree at the very edge of where the forest met the field, felt a disconcerting gentleness of paradoxical strength and command. This farmer who was hiding away in a tree to 
spy out the wolf shepherd's magic, felt a thinning of the known world, squirmed and held his breath in the increasing sense of endings and beginnings, of the great cycles of the celestial sphere, and of chthonic chasms and merciful death. The farmer felt his own sniffing meanness at the center of his soul, but pushed it down for the powerful secrets he sought. Silence, profound engorged with a winter death, peaceful presence. The farmer felt a gigantic movement, a padding in the brush and bushes below him, and nearly fell out of the tree with soul shock when he saw a mass of loping beasts, haunches with reverberating earth energy, deep gray and charcoal fur, like the swirling thunderclouds of an elder god. The farmer trembled as he took in the bass thump of paws padding and throat huffs. They were too massive, too powerful to take in at once. And as this massive fur and growl, an elegant predator merged into the field, the farmer saw a peculiar thing. Wolves larger than cattle, but limping. Sniffing the air, they all turned in his direction, and at first, the farmer was terrified that they saw him, saw him with the giant single eye in the middle of their foreheads. But if they saw, they paid him no heed. For the lame, one-eyed Cyclopean wolves, these beasts of other worlds in primeval hunger, now howled at the coming of a presence. That lupine howl was gorged with a presence of disconcerting gentleness and paradoxical strength and command. The ground shook with the rhythm of footfall, and at first the farmer could only register the grandiose presence as of falling and rising haunches, and then deep gray and charcoal fur, and rippling muscles and limping lameness, glowing eye and elemental breath. But then he saw all of this combined, and his mind's eye was nearly crushed by it. Into the field came a limping, one-eyed wolf whose legs had been crippled by all the weight of chasmic underworlds. The lameness radiated death wisdom, told of a creature who had roamed lands of death sleep and lullaby darkness. They were wolf legs crippled by infinite wandering, and on his back was the wolf shepherd himself, ancient beyond ancient, world beyond worlds. His elderly hunched body was covered in fur, strangely soft and beckoning, and his shoulder blades were exaggerated and lupine, wolf-like. His back was still to the farmer, and though the farmer's bells had loosened in terror, he felt emanating from the strange figure so many things that felt homely and familiar, bovine meat and grain, bread and manure. Yet, when the wolf mounted wolf man turned in his direction the farmer caught his breath in that time canyon face an impossible mingling of human and wolf were two eyes one was full of acute needle-like pain flaming red and covered in scar tissue barely an eye at all but a flesh and blood chasm the other was as large as a calf rounded, celestial, and glowing with an infinite blackness. The farmer knew that the eye 
saw into his deepest depths, saw his intention to learn the wolf shepherd's wolf magic and to use it against his hated neighbor. In his terror at being found out, the farmer began to whisper an incantation taught to him by his grandmother. Make them sleep, Lord, he chanted. Build a railing around a rocky mountain out of the stardust and new moon and the righteous sun. Before the stray beasts, before the climbing adders, before the evil of man. And while he whispered his magic, the wolf shepherd slid down off his lupine steed and limped towards the cyclopean beasts, began throwing fresh meat into the midst of them, and they howled with delight. The farmer, terrified, repeated the incantation and yet felt something very, very wrong. Somewhere deeper, his gut met infinity. Indeed, something was wrong, so he tried a new spell. St. Nicholas, take the keys of paradise. Close the gullet of the mad dog, the forest wolf, so that they do not drink the blood or tear the flesh of our lambs and calves. The farmer trembled and wept and chanted the incantation, closing his eyes and yet still overcome by the sound of howling and devouring and lupine huffing. And still that wrong feeling grew, spread from the depths of his infinity-tinged gut and radiated into all parts of his body, soul, and mind. There was a prickling of his skin, and when he touched his arm, he felt fur. The weight, the heaviness of the incantations, seemed to implode to their center, and to him, seemed to now be working their way within him, stretching bones and sinews, cracking and reshaping his skull, adding sharp bone to his teeth, elongating them into fangs. With stomach-churning horror, the farmer realized that the incantations had backfired, had sniffed out his desire to use the wolf shepherd's magic against his neighbor's flock. The incantations, word spirits with a mind and will, had turned on him. And the wolf shepherd and his pack watched as the farmer fell from the tree, writhing as his humanity transformed. And when the wolf shepherd threw him his meat, the farmer, now wolf, devoured it. In a distant land far surpassing the nine kingdoms of imagination, there was a girl named Nicole Schmidt whose grandfather took her on his knee and instilled in her a hunger for storytelling. In honor of Charles Henderson, my grandfather, I've been working on this labor of narrative love for well over a year. My intent is to bring to life that same immediacy, the same earnest involvement in the story I had all those years ago when my grandfather whipped up spontaneous tales. I also want to connect you with the stories of generations past, with the stories produced by those lost to history, 
and as Angela Carter so eloquently put it, with the vivid, raw narratives of the anonymous poor whose labor formed our world. Want to join in on this vision? Would you like to encourage and support me in churning out more stories? For sure, with a full-time job, I need the extra oomph of knowing you all are getting something out of it. You can support me on Patreon and become a part of that inner circle of storytelling enthusiasts whose creative partnership will help shape the future content of Mythos. You can also like my Mythos podcast page on Facebook and head over to mythospodcast.com to read more about my inspiration and rationale for particular stories. And if you want inspiration for your own creative efforts or just want to do some more imaginative frolicking, there's also suggestions for novels, stories, and films. Or you're just wanting more storytelling. Well, the rest of the Lore Britannia series is there for you to explore. Everything from phantom dogs prowling the moors to water witches haunting stagnant ponds. Happy listening.